Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary with me as always. Senior editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so we're going to get to your, uh, your podcast listener questions in a little bit. Uh, we thought we would dilate... Um, on the uh, political controversy uh, over the last two days uh, regarding the uh, the Democrats in the Senate essentially filibustering the... Ooh, that sounds good. Oh, I thought I had muted. That... My... I apologize. <laughs> no, that was like was a that... radio commercial I, I for coffee. Yeah. It was, it was. It I was want to amazing. refill on my coffee now. Yeah, <laughs> my, my I, don't even, I don't even have any coffee. Anyway. That was poor mic discipline. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. This is, uh, you know, this is raw. We have raw content here. Anyway, the Democrats uh, filibustering the uh, relief bill, uh, chrono, uh, coronavirus relief bill, Um so uh, my own predilection in these sorts of things is a kind of uh, both sides are bad, right? That's my, in generally, when you're talking about uh, budgetary bills and giant bills like this, that uh, everybody's at fault, everybody's trying to stick bad stuff in the bills. I'm not, and, and that is generally sort of the tenor of the mainstream media coverage. I'm really not sure that is the case here, that what we have is a, a very uh, strange decision by the Democrats to hold up the bill uh, because they want to stuff it full of uh, liberal leftist pork, um, which just seems bizarre to me since this is going to be the largest uh, federal government spending bill in, in the history of the planet. And that should probably be enough for liberal Democrats to say, okay, whatever. Um, and apparently it's, it's not. Um, and yeah, so no, I, I'm, I'm going to rant about this a little bit because this is absolutely not a both sides issue. Republicans, uh, comported themselves rather poorly by putting out politically, a, 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 just a positioning statement that was, you know, very focused on the, the nature of the debt the deficit at this time, but they budged and they moved. It didn't survive 24 hours. And Democrats in the Senate in good faith negotiated with Republicans this bipartisan package and then proceeded to filibuster it out of the blue um, and scuttle it and send the markets into a tailspin. And then Nancy Pelosi introduced this alternative package, which is just an obscene uh, series of giveaways to Democratic uh, groups and National Endowment of Arts and, you know, uh, diversity councils and mandatory voter registration and all sorts of giveaways and a 1,400-page bill that no one could possibly read in an emergency circumstance was absolutely repulsive. And then what happens is negotiations continue in the Senate, 
And everybody's going to come back to this bipartisan package that they negotiated anyway today. And now Pelosi says, what, this morning that she's warm to the Senate bill all of a sudden, (laughs) just because nothing else is going to pass. This is what is going to pass. They just lost 24 hours. They completely misread the moment, misread the room, and are going to have to retreat. Uh, I don't see what they get out of it. Maybe they get a fig leaf out of Republicans uh, and call it a victory. But they're not going to get very much. It was just wasted time and at an absolutely imperative moment where time is of the essence. I think they what they are getting, if I if I've uh, read correctly, what they continually uh, have been saying in the last 12 to 24 hours is they get a narrative where they can call a bailout a slush fund for rich Republicans and for Trump. Right. I mean, I think what you're consistently seeing is this argument that there should be more transparency and we shouldn't have six months to wait till we see who gets the the bailout money from, you know, that Mnuchin's going to oversee a treasury. We need to know right away. We need to make sure that Trump isn't included in this. And then you get the typical narrative of, oh, there weren't enough protections for workers, et cetera, et cetera. So for their base, I think this is a this highly ideologically motivated message of a slush fund plays very well into their hands in a run up to an election. But I agree with Noah. I think this is absolutely an overreach and a miscalculation by Pelosi, although I will say the coverage that we were talking before we started taping here about the New York Times coverage of this never mentions any of this, any of the progressive ideological agenda items that were put into Pelosi's version of this bill. It was all about this. Is it a slush fund? What will they do? How will they negotiate in in good faith? So there is obviously from the left leaning to the hard progressive left narrative emerging of, you know, here once again is all this, this, you know, corrupt, rich Republican attempts to, you know, give money to big business to bail out big business. And that does resonate with a certain number of Democrats, uh, given previous bailouts of the major banks, for example. I'm not, I don't agree with that narrative, but it is one that has some sticking power for that group. Abe, let me, let me ask you this. The, the, uh, the bill, uh, the, the the notion that there is an unbelievable sense of urgency, particularly in terms of providing, say, liquidity to hospitals and uh, and 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 that sort of thing. Um, uh, again, like you would you would you would think that that would be a a, a no brainer, and that uh, uh, why 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 can you stop this? That quick, like, I assume yesterday would be over. I mean, I think we even said this on the podcast that, like, in the couple of hours after we podcasted, that they would, they would, they would come to Jesus on this because uh, the demands were so um, because you because know, extreme because fuel emissions need uh, addressing. That's why, you, yeah, you know? yeah, uh, th- things of that nature. That that that, for example, that um, as Christine says, the, the these editorials don't mention um, that the that the. Democrats wanted in this. Um, no, it was just, um, I agree. I think it was entirely because, so they could have get some foot in the door here to um, criticize, to make an issue out of what is essentially the country uh, wanted, to, but, but to make it, to cast some shadow on um, something that, that the uh, Republicans are behind and that the administration is going to sign. Right. Well, you know, the other thing about the slush fund and obviously, you know, the, I, I think that that had real um, power, this idea that there was going to be five hundred million dollars basically in Stephen Mnuchin's hands to distribute as he saw fit. And then, you know, and, and that was bad. And I understand that. But, you know, part of this million dollars, not billion. Is it only a million? OK, I was asking. Yeah. I thought it was billion with a B. I, it I think billion. it was billion. Will you take yeah. a look? Anyway, somebody take a look. Because that's I, a lot of money. Five hundred million and a one no, trillion dollar bill is not a lot of money. 
<laughs> no, but so the idea is that um, uh, uh, to give, to be in a position where uh, money can be distributed on the spur of the moment uh, in the midst of, a, of an unprecedented disaster. I mean, I think that's, it's not so that his rich friends could get a bailout or that the Trump hotels could get a bailout. It's so that if somebody says, oh my God, you know, we're, we need, we need to advance so-and-so, you know, $20 million to buy something to get parts for the ventilators that we're asking them to make, that there's somebody who can write that check. And the way our uh, government works, you see, is that the legislative branch authorizes and appropriates money and the executive branch spends the money. Uh, and so if you don't like that, that's understandable. But I mean, the, the legislative branch is not constitutionally allowed to administer the spending of the money. That is what the executive branch does. And there can be controls and all of that. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, so I, again, I'm going to presume that this will all be something that nobody remembers, you know, in, in a while. It just seemed that the, uh, there was, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. To it was also, happened. I mean, it's all, they're also playing with the the terms here in the original bill. And I don't really know the contours of how this would work, but it's $425 billion to be administered by the Fed Board of Governors not the the White House or the Treasury Secretary. And I don't know how definitive was, that, that line is. I don't know. Is. There's, there was something else. I, uh, whatever. We're, we're, we, shouldn't, we, shouldn't sort of, we shouldn't get specific about this when we're not clear about it. But, but the slush fund problem is an interesting, yeah, it's a gambit or whatever. You know, it's terrible. And this is all. And as, as I said on the podcast yesterday, you know, we're going to discover when this is all over that money was wasted uh, people stole it. Uh, you know, Milo Minder Binder will have, you know, have, will have expropriated, you know, every every ventilator and sold it <laughs> twice and all of that. Um, that's what happens in these circumstances. And you go deal with it later, you know, um, because the house is burning down. And if you start saying, well, we need to make sure that the water that comes out of the hydrant is, you know, is is. Uh, that there's, you know, we need to check the water pressure before we turn on the before we turn on the hydrant is 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 incredibly dumb, uh, and and worse than dumb. Like it's uh, again politically, it suggests a tone deafness that seems very surprising to me, um, and that uh, uh, Pelosi, I don't think is that tone deaf. So there may be more going on in the Demo particularly in the House, in the Democratic caucus in the House, in terms of this uh you know not letting an opportunity go to waste than we than we realize since much of what she is doing in politics is trying to preserve her uh position under assault from the squad but let's let you know what so let's let's move on also though briefly i mean we haven't yeah. talked about this because no one has talked about this the right. um democratic provisions for individuals is a loan for right. individuals starting at 75k and up and couples at 150 you have to pay it back uh, yeah. I don't know what you're. I'm, I, so the money, the money, the if you, if you, the individual relief check that everyone will get, if you earn more than seventy five thousand dollars as an individual or one fifty as a family, you will eventually have to pay back that money. It is fifteen hundred. Yeah, fifteen hundred for individuals, three thousand yeah. for joint filers, and if you make seventy five more as an individual or one hundred and fifty as a per, in, as a couple, it's a loan to be paid back at a date uncertain. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting because if course, Republicans proposed that, the ceiling would come down on them. Yeah. Anyway, um, so we'll 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 see what 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 comes out of this in the end. And of course, you can also re. This is part of the insanity of the way they structure these bills. You can go back and correct legislation. In other words, if you do something like that, and it's like, what are you crazy? You can go back and you can you can lift the provision in another vote. You know, these bills don't have to be. To 22,000 pages long. They, no. can, they can, in fact, be 40 pages long, and you can have 12 of them and pass them individually. And, and then, that's what, this is not like TARP either. It's not like the bill failed. The debate failed. Right, mm -hmm. right. Okay, so let's, uh, so let's move to our uh, listener questions, okay? Uh, we have dozens of them, so we can't get to all of them, but let's try to answer them quickly uh, some of them are kind of existential, so it might be a little hard, but I'm going to ask the first one, and sadly, we didn't prepare this beforehand, so you guys, uh, you guys should have uh, seen some of them, but, um, but okay, so uh, Brian Ruff asks the following, what do you all believe to be the essential books for conservatives? So why, why don't we all pick one, if you, can, if you can think of one, and do, you know, like 30 seconds on it. So, Christine, an essential book for conservatives. I mean, I, I'll go to Russell Kirk and the conservative mind, if only because it gives, um, I think, both a philosophical and an ideological sense of tone, temperament, and posture. Uh, if you if you are engaged with conservative ideas, I don't think it's right in every respect, but it is if you're looking for a good start, um, kind of uh, it, obviously an important one. But personally, if you want, if you the essential conservative books are the Western anything in the Western canon that that is you know uh, respectful of tradition and upholding virtue. Um, so in that sense, you know. I would say go to read your Stoic philosophers, read Montaigne, read, read any of the Western canon, which actually is not a, I'm not trying to be flippant. Um, each generation reads less and less of the canon. So I think it's actually urgent that we all continue to read as much of it as possible. Abe, you got a candidate? Sure. Yeah. You know, so much of this, I think, has to do with um, reading the right book at the right time for you. And then it becomes, it's it's meaningful for a whole sort of uh, assortment of reasons at that time. Um, so for me, and this goes um, in addition to what Christine said about, obviously, you know, you can go back to the ancients, and I think there are there are sort of essential books that that inform conservatism. But um, the closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom <clears throat> was very important to me because uh, what it did for me was sort of um, expose the counterintuitive ideas behind some conservative thought. And that's one of the things that I discovered about conservative, because I wasn't initially conservative. And when I, I sort of moved there, that's one of the fun things about conservative thought is that there are these ideas that are counterintuitive. Um, and uh, Bloom does a great job of that and um, of really explaining how, it, as the title suggests, in an effort to be open-minded um, with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, uh, the, the liberal, modern liberal thought is about shutting down the critical faculties. Noah? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I don't know if this relates to, like, a political conversion. I didn't have one of those. I'm, I don't, I'm suspect of people who have, like, a blinding moment of, of converting to one particular ideology or another. Everything's gradual. Um, but, so, I didn't read Yuval Levin's um, books on Burke. But the um, one that I did read on Burke that was probably the most formative was uh, written by a, a minister, a member of parliament uh, by the name of Jesse Norman. Wrote a, uh, a a Burke biography that was uh, broken up in two parts, which I found very illuminating. The first was political philosophy, and then the second was biography. And it sort of traced how his political evolution traced with his biography by breaking it up into these two distinct parts. I thought was particularly informative because it showed how his political evolution and his political thought, which is so influential, um, tied in with the places he was in his life, which is really how all of us evolve politically. It has a lot to do with your personal circumstances. Um, so I found that to be particularly resonant uh, as a conservative because there are so many. Um, it, it's it's impossible to divorce one's personal circumstances from your political philosophy at any given point in your life. And that's he did that. And that to me was, I thought, very valuable. Right. So um, uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to quickly mention two because I think Abe's Abe's uh, qualification that it matters when you read things is so important that it's very hard to say this is the book that uh, crystallizes or summarizes because right. of course you have there are different things are important to people at different ages and you know family and tradition and certain types of things are not important to you when you're 19 years old. Um, and uh, I would say that the that the most important book to me in in those uh, in that regard was uh, the Brothers Karamazov uh, uh, by Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. Uh, th- this is the book that is the that is the summa of the discussion of what happens when you become unmoored from uh, ancient verities and ultimately. In his in his telling, you know, belief in belief in God, because uh, of course the famous phrase is, you know, without God everything is permitted, and uh, the account of uh, how uh, a parricide uh, happens, um, and and these uh, three uh, brothers, each of whom represent a different kind of strand of human behavior, or four brothers actually, strand of human behavior and consciousness. 
um, I read, I think when I was, I was 19 and it was like being, being hit by a lightning bolt, uh, and getting an understanding of the world that was entirely new and fresh. And then later on, I would say, the thing is, I haven't read this in 30 years, so I don't know that it would stand in the same way, but Paul Johnson's Modern Times, which is a history of the 20th century, which does something fascinating in its telling, because his his story, which is not unrelated to Dostoevsky, is how uh, the dominant political, moral, spiritual philosophy of the 20th century was relativism. And he actually centers relativism in a real trope that isn't just like facile in the discovery of relativity. The book begins with the scientific proof of the theory of relativity in, I think, 1919 and, um, and how the earthquake the, of this notion that the that uh, time is relative in particular um, had um, cascading consequences over the course of the century in terms of how people uh, viewed uh, things that were once thought to be immutable that suddenly seemed like they were very mutable and uh, that also hit me with the force of a force of a lightning bolt again I you know it was a book of a certain time and we were still fighting the Cold War, and uh, uh, so I, I, I don't know how it would affect me now. I read it, you know, when I was, I don't know, tw- in my late 20s, and... But, you know, b- both your both your choices are, are thematically related in that they're both about becoming unmoored, essentially, right? right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that, that's yeah. the idea, but relativity, yeah. too, yeah. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the necessity of mooring, which I think is ultimately mm-hmm. what conservatism is right is that is that you you are nestled in a you're you live in a web of connection to the past to your family to the institutions that you're part of and that individual and that a certain type of extreme individualism um you know is the death of that and has uh, unbelievably bad consequences including the wrong kind of communitarianism you know which is which is top down imposed socialist communist control or or to distinguish from our current political moment which i would not define as conservative but more populist i mean you know russell kirk would have to rewrite his book it would be called the conservative spleen right because right now we're in a moment where the the kind of uh trumpian populist style even if it is more style than substance is not really a comfortable fit for a lot of people who call themselves conservative setting aside republican right. politics right okay so uh let me move on to another uh question Okay, and Abe, this is actually, I think, particularly for you, since you uh, wrote about this subject for us pretty recently. Uh, Joel Avila writes, uh, could one of you make the case and the counter case for why Saul Bellow's works are still relevant today? Um, I'm about halfway through his works and and uh, the Zachary Letter biography, volume two, sitting on my table at the moment. That's, that's a, something that Abe wrote about six months ago, maybe? Was it longer ago? I'm not sure. Uh, and so uh, the, here's the question. So the gentleman has read the books, but he and he's fascinated by them, but he'd have a hard time convincing someone without similar characteristics, someone who went to the University of Chicago and lived in Chicago for 15 years, uh, to pick up one of his books relative to other 20th century novelists. Few of his novels seem to have actual conclusions. They seem to fade out and stop. Um, 
Will does Bella's general take on the human experience resonate well with readers in 2020? Um, uh, I'd argue in the affirmative position that he really does see himself as a modern day practitioner of wisdom literature. He wants you, the reader, to stop being a jerk and become a mensch. <laughs> okay, Abe, what's yeah. your? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that the that that Bellow's work is. Um, as relevant today as it was when he wrote it, but I, I think the the case really is either you you are sufficiently enchanted by his writing, which I am, or certainly have been. This this is certainly another case where if you read him at the if you read something at the right time, it affects you a certain way. And I, and I picked up Bella very young. I picked it up when I was about fifteen. I first read I think Humboldt's Gift, and I and I sort of encountered a type of fiction um, that I didn't wasn't aware existed before, and it had a very um, freeing, energizing, electrifying effect on me. Um, but, but the, the case that he doesn't write particularly, um, like well-behaving novels is very true. Um, they are sort of elliptical and he goes on long perorations about his sort of mystical, um, uh, uh, um, philosophizing and, um, he does not, do a very good job of portraying real female characters. I think he's relevant to the extent if you if you can take a novel like um, Samler's Planet, which is uh, Mr. Samler's Planet, which was like the um, a, a kind of a broadside against <clears throat> radical American culture uh, in the late '60s, um, particularly how it was manifesting in New York City. Um, that I think will be relevant to the extent that the the the, the hard cultural the the sort of cultural hard left continues to be um, a force for bad um, and that should not be left unchecked. Okay, so you know Saul Bell it is impossible to say for 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 the world around, say, Commentary Magazine. Uh, it is impossible to describe the centrality of Saul Bellow's cultural position. Uh, among New York Jewish intellectuals, and even though he himself really didn't live in New York very much, um, you know, for you know, forty or uh, fifty years, he was he was certainly the, in some ways, the dominant cultural figure and the argument for uh, the kind of worldview of the partisan review crowd being the important view of uh, of American and world society. Um, uh, he was maybe the best American, pro next to Fitzgerald, I think, maybe the best American prose stylist uh, among writers of fiction of the 20th century. Um, I don't think his novels stand up uh, tragically as, as novels. Um, there are just, it's just every page there is something extraordinary. Um, right. I, I was a student of his at the University of Chicago. I took uh, tag team courses that he taught with uh, with Alan Bloom, the author of Closing the American Mind, uh, in the Committee on Social Thought, and um, uh, he was. These were small seminars, uh, and um, they were astonishing because uh, uh, Bella was a very relaxed um, person and spoke very calmly. Uh, Bloom was a very herky jerky, hysterical person, and. Um, Bella would begin saying something and then he would be done in three minutes or four minutes. And you would realize that what he had just spoken was um, grammatically uh, correct, uh, had commas and punctuation as he was speaking. It was literally as though 
he were putting it through his mouth, prose uh, was coming out that was um, perfect in a way that most people don't speak prose. I only say that just because, uh, you know, it's an interesting anecdote. It has nothing to do with, um, I don't think people will be reading him except academically uh, much anymore. Um, a note on his uh, views of women. I, I have to say, I've read you know a handful of his books, and I agree with Abe that I mean, I read them when I was a young mother, which is probably the worst possible time <laughs> in a woman's life she should ever read anything by Bello. Um, but I will say there are these moments of uh, the male perspective, as it were, that were in- incredibly enlightening. I think it was in I think it was in Herzog. There's a wonderful phrase where he talks that Herzog talks about potato love, yes. and he means a kind of bland smother. You know, the, the kind of love that obviously uh, Bello himself had experienced from the women in his life and absolutely rebelled against and yeah. from his personal history continued to. But I felt like there are he is it, it's very easy to write off a lot of male novelists of the 20th century, especially Bello type, you know, swaggering male novelists having nothing to teach women. But I, I would argue the opposite. I, I agree. I don't actually like his novels, but there are these insights about gender relations that are crucial to understand if you're female, but please don't read it if you're a young mother. That's my only advice about Bellow. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the, the the interesting thing about Bellow's novels is, you know, he wrote relatively few of them over the course of a, of a almost 60-year career as a novelist. And um, a lot of what uh, animated the passions that led to the actual final productions of these books were divorces in which he expressed rage against the ex-wife. Herzog is a novel of divorce. The Dean's, um, not the Dean's December, uh, one of the uh, books after the Dean's December is a novel of divorce. More Die of Heartbreak. Um, More Die of Heartbreak is a novel of divorce. Humboldt's Gift is a novel of divorce. Um, Henderson, The Rain King is a novel about divorce. These are are books in which he found the energy to complete the book because he, (laughs) I think, wanted to take revenge against... Uh, an ex-wife. Uh, Looping alimony payments are probably yeah, exactly. as well. <laughs> so, and that, that is, um, there's, there's a longer topic to discuss about American writers of the 20th century mm-hmm. and and the horrors that they perpetrated in the creation or the slandering of their own female characters. But that will, we'll have to leave that. But I, I just uh, want to add the, yeah. <clears throat> that the um, the two-part biography, the, the uh, leader biography is, is, fantastic not only to get a sense of bellow but it's also a kind of history of the intellectual movement that john describes <clears throat> it's it's vital to understanding the 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 partisan review crowd and um a commentary to some extent as well too okay so moving on uh chris uh Pilateri, uh asks two questions for everyone as it is now becoming clearer that the chinese communist party's suppression of information regarding the coronavirus outbreak prevented containment, what punishment should the U.S. impose on China after the pandemic is under control? If the answer is sanctions, what specifically would these look like? And for Abe, Christine, and Noah, is it frustrating having always to correct John? Now, let me, let me, let me correct myself. Yesterday I said that Albert Wallstetter had written uh, the book on Pearl Harbor. It was actually his wife, Roberta, not to misuse a uh, Roberta Wallstetter wrote the, the 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 famous book on Pearl Harbor. So there I am belittling uh, the contributions of a of a female in the uh, Saul Bellow <laughs> tradition. Um, so I'm correcting myself. But anyway, um, Chinese Communist Party suppression of the coronavirus, uh, free free understanding of the coronavirus outbreak. What should be done? 
Okay, so I will decline to answer the second part of this question because in these trying times, <laughs> job security is extremely important. Well done. Uh, well done. <laughs> uh, second, so this is cognitively difficult um, for me because part of my uh, worldview is that as a mechanism for um, making countries less dangerous, liberalism is a very effective vehicle, and the promotion of liberalism is in inextricably linked to the promotion of liberal trade regimes. And so I view trade as a valuable weapon in the we fight should say you're using However, the word you're using the word liberal in a classical sense, not in the conservatives versus liberal you know, not not in our MSNBC late eighteenth century <laughs> yeah, uh, view okay. of, of the word. Um, <clears throat> that said um, the big risk to engaging in uh, a, a real effort to contain and confront the Chinese Party, uh, Chinese Communist Party, has been our trade relations, our, our intertwined and um, and actually impossible to unravel this uh, necessary trade relations with China because of their labor market. Um, a lot of that has been unwound by this crisis. So we do have an opportunity to recalibrate our approach to to China. The notion peddled by some very uh, enthusiastic uh, opponents of a free trade regime with China suggest that we can simply repatriate all our manufacturing capabilities. That's not going to happen, simply cannot. But the notion that we can and should um, repatriate a lot of the necessary for national security purposes, um, stuff that we import, for example, drugs, obviously, but also defense-related technologies, I think is something that's become imperative, and you'll see a lot more of that. And China's economy is going to take a, a real hit, and that will lead to some political instability, and there's nothing the Chinese Communist Party fears more, and we should exacerbate those tensions. That's something that a media will actually play a significant role in, and we've seen no interest in the political press to play uh, play their role in that. But I, I think the, the Trump administration is on more firm ground um, and will leave a mark that other even democratic regimes will follow uh, for a much more confrontational approach to China, but uh, if, if we think we can just do it mechanically through trade relations, I don't think that's that's how you're going to get to the ultimate endpoint, which we all should agree is a more um, freer, liberal Chinese regime. Okay. Um, I, the only thing I'll say is that uh, in 1996, uh, at the Weekly Standard, the first year of the Weekly Standard, we did um, a special issue called China, the issue, and the idea was that we were, that the, uh, the West was caving to China, that it was, uh, that uh, the business opportunities were so uh, extreme and, 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 uh, and the business sector was so passionate about getting itself involved uh, with China that we were overlooking all sorts of behaviors by the Chinese regime that were going to come and bite us um, in the you-know-what uh, at some point, meaning, uh, you know, uh, no interest in uh, maintenance of the rule of law, of the sanctity of contract, um, of the, you know, of, of proper manufacturing rules and all of that. And so this is now 25 years later, you know, a quarter century later, obviously, that argument was lost entirely, and it's only come in through the back door because of populist uh, rage that followed the financial meltdown of 2008. Um, but if the world concludes, uh, if, the, if this pandemic is, um, is of the scope of the Spanish influenza or, uh, you know, something even worse, let's say, 
And the world concludes that um, there was a moment in uh, the early winter of, of 2019, or you know, what, the end of 2019, um, that uh, millions of people could have been saved had the Chinese regime been more open, and that ten, you know, and that millions of people died uh, because of its own domestic uh, uh, misbehavior. Um, there will be hell to pay, and I don't know what that hell will look like. But um, the idea that we're just going to go back to sort of some kind of weird business as usual understanding that China has impunity to act in its in its uh, in its uh, near abroad, and that you know, and that uh, anybody who talks about restricting access or like you know controlling access to Chinese markets is some kind of a Neanderthal. Uh, who doesn't understand the need for interconnectedness and globalization and all of that, that argument will die. That argument will, you know, that will, that will fall to the wayside because of the very understandable human need to uh, impose consequences on a perpetrator uh, and, a, and a malingerer and, 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 a, and a regime whose uh, lack of openness and paranoia will be seen to have been the proximate cause of this global death spiral. All right, so let's uh, move on to, uh, I think maybe we have time for one more, and then we can do, do more on, a, on another podcast. Um, Amanda Bernson asks the following, what are you going to do when you next need a haircut? <laughs> Anybody? Okay, wait, I want to jump in here as the, oh, okay. as oh, the token oh, woman it's... on the Commentary Magazine podcast, because if a woman is asking this question, what she's really asking is, the gray is coming in, my roots are showing, what the hell am I going to do? I mean, there's obviously over-the-counter solutions, but we're supposed to be sheltering in place and not be going out and buying stuff. Um, uh, you're going to have to just make do, right? I mean, everyone's going to be much more their real, authentic selves. I mean, personally, the the silver lining of this crisis for me will be if the if the economy of the Instagram influencer finally implodes. You know, this <laughs> idea that real life looks anything like these ladies on Instagram. So for the ladies out there, just you know what, we're all going to do our, uh, our our natural hair color is soon going to be revealed to the world, and I think that's you know part of the authenticity of this of this experience that we all will just have to weather. For the men, I have no idea. I mean, can't you cut your own? Here it just strikes me as not a difficult question for me. It's I'm not. It's Try not, to cut your own not, hair. <laughs> no, I would never. It is, it is not easy to cut your own hair. I I, I had a I had a scraggly thing in my hair, and I took a scissors and I was trying to reach it through using the mirror, and it I, it was like some kind of and bizarre you, slapstick comedy where yeah, I you get you get nowhere near it. Get yeah. Nothing. Yeah, yeah, I, there have yeah, to be YouTube yeah. videos for all of these questions, right? No doubt. Well, my 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 friend Abigail Schreier just said that she had to cut her family's hair, and she started not knowing anything. And after YouTube, she was Vidal Sassoon. <laughs> um, so, uh, my thirteen-year-old daughter came out of the bathroom last night, very uh, very terrified, and said. I know it looks terrible. I cut my bangs. I know it looks terrible. And she came out of the bathroom and she looked great, actually. <laughs> it was sort of like she cut her bangs and they was, it was just uh, perfect. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, as long as the internet stays up and people can watch YouTube videos about how to cut hair. 
I, I will say for our, because our listeners can't see all of us, um, the gentlemen of the Commentary Magazine podcast are all growing out their beards, and it's it's quite a quite an experiment here. So I, I will well, report Abe, back on that. <laughs> Abe, Abe always has a beard. Abe is a bearded person. Um, Noah is a very uh, fine shaven person usually, but I would say he looks. Um, Rugged. He looks uh, yeah. impressively rugged, and I, I am. I usually shave only every two days, and during the apocalypse, I'm, I'm shaving only four or five. But and I, I am shaving, and I look like uh, I'm, I'm starting to look like Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, three, a couple. I had a beard uh, for a while uh, after having not having one for like thirty or forty years. Um, and it came in, you know, gray and white mostly. And, uh, though my hair is not and my, whatever little hair I have left. And at some point my wife said, you know, it just, it makes you look a lot older. And I thought, well, you know what, I guess I don't have to really look a lot older (laughs) if I don't want to. So I, so I, I, I shave, but yeah. Um, you know, there is that. Yeah. No, I think the, the, the real question about the haircut is, when this is over, this is like the Larry David question for me, and I go to the barber, do I, do I pull out my frequent customer card to be punched, or do I, or do I, or do I pay the rest of the year just because? Well, in, well, the, in, the, in the Larry David thing, like he yeah. would take out the, the customer card, and then he would get into a vicious fight because the barber would say, you know, we, we can't honor those anymore. And he right. would be like, what do you mean? I mean? It's a card. It's a contract. It's an unwritten contract. And then he would have a fight, and then, you know, the judge would force him to shave his head or something at the end. Right. Meanwhile, the ladies out there all will, will hope that we all look like Susan Sontag, but actually we'll look more like the Bride of Frankenstein by the end of all of this. So bear with us, gentlemen. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so uh, thank you all for your questions. As I say, we will answer more of them on, on another show. Uh, tomorrow we will have our friend Yuval Levin. Uh, joining us, if you want a homework assignment, go to theatlantic.com and read Yuval's piece, which I think is called Hard Pause and a Soft Return. Soft Start. Soft Start. A Hard Pause and a Soft Start. It's a pretty uh, remarkable analysis of what we need to do now to restart the economy. Um, so for uh, Noah Rothman, Abe Greenwald, and Christine Rosen, I'm John Potvoritz. Keep the candle burning.